It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, So this may seem like an odd passage to pick for Palm Sunday, but I think the question of Luke 18, 18 through 30, is the same one that's being asked as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Who is Jesus and what do we do with him? So let's read this passage together and get to it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, well, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, all right, well, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then, well, who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we've, uh, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray together that God would bless this uh, hearing of the word. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your scripture that is holy, that it is your uh, greatest sign that you are reaching to communicate with us that you did not act and avoid, but acted in a way that you wanted to reach out to us, to dwell with us. May we hear that word well this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've preached here once before. My name is Andrew Barber. Some of you know me. Uh, I teach at the Stony Brook School um, in Stony Brook. Uh, It's a boarding school. Uh, There are several young men from Sag Harbor who go there that I already made some connections with you guys there in my dorm. Uh, I teach English there, and I preach about a third of the messages. Mark and I were able to connect in that we both went to the same seminary, though I a little later than he. Uh, my, I have a wife and two kids, Murray and George. They can't be here because George is very sick and is waking up with crust all over his eyes, and it's very sad. Uh, Murray, uh, my wife texted me as I was on my way over here. Murray has started this thing where he listens to music when he goes to bed, and um, um, Father-in-law gave us this Adventures in Odyssey. I don't know if you know Adventures in Odyssey, kind of these Bible stories. And we, we, don't always, we don't always vet them. We just kind of put them in and listen to them. And my wife texted me that he has started combining certain hymns with the Star Wars theme song that he will sing like Come Thou Fount and break out into Star Wars. So we're this close, right? Um, almost there. But anyway, they, uh, they send their greetings. So... When we look at Luke 18, I wanted to start with, some of you maybe have read and seen the movie by John, uh, the book by John Krakauer, Into Thin Air, which was about an ascent on Mount Everest in 1996. John Krakauer is a fantastic journalist. I love everything he writes, and it's one of these remarkable situations in which he chose to go on this trip up Mount Everest to kind of document uh, the industry of getting people up to Mount Everest, and it turned out to be a very traumatic trip, and several people lost their lives. Um, now, one of the things as you're, as you're reading this book and experiencing it is, uh, when you think of Mount Everest, at least I as a non-mountain climber, 
you hear that Mount Everest is incredibly difficult. So what I picture is that it is probably the most difficult in terms of getting holds and those kinds of things. But really what makes it difficult is it's not actually difficult in terms of, there are a couple of places where it's hard, but it's not actually difficult in terms of the actual climbing, but more what it does to your body. So it's a slow ascent. Um, and the way you have to go up is you have to go up several thousand feet, let your body kind of get used to it, come down, go up again, get used to it, stay there, then go up again, and so you're, you're slowly working your way up. Well, as you get higher, you get to this, there's a point at about 26,000 feet called the dead zone, uh, for obvious reasons. And in the dead zone, what starts to happen is for some people, their brains actually begin to react to the lack of oxygen and enlarge a little bit. Uh, this causes lots of problems where they begin to hallucinate, begin to see things that aren't there, and uh, they've done MRIs on people who've gone up and come down, and there are actual permanent changes that happen to some people as they go on these climbs. And uh, in Krakauer's experience, several people lost their lives in situations that, as you, as you hear, you think if they had only had their wits about them, it would have been fine, but because they were so high up, so for instance, people would say, I'm just going to base camp, and they would turn and just walk off a ledge. Or there was a, a group of oxygen canisters full of oxygen. And a guy is sitting there looking at each one saying, empty, 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 and they're totally full. And because his perception is off, he can't read that the oxygen is actually there. The life that he should have is right in front of him, and he's tossing it to the side. Uh, there's a sermon in and of itself. The, the, final, the final leader of the trip, who uh, felt like it was his duty to be the last the last one up and the last one down. Uh, they actually, he, he was up top and he was in a location where only he could come down. He had to do it himself. And he just refused to do it. He was physically able to do it, but he just did not do it. And they actually patched him through to his family, begging him to come down. And he said, yeah, I'll get, I'll get to it. And just wouldn't come down. Uh, when we come to Luke 18, I think we have to think that this is a story about high altitude climbers. Okay, one of the things I think as you're reading about these stories of people going up Everest is kind of in the back of your head and what Krakauer wants you to think about is like, I, I see the heroism and the sacrifice, but this isn't like men sacrificing things for a, a military adventure, right? Or uh, these guys have families and they, they just chose to do this. Was this worth it, right? Was this worth the cost? And I think in lots of ways we too have, we can look at them and say, well, that's crazy. But I think we too have these kind of high altitude climbing tendencies, a lot of us, right? Where we're going up and up and we think if we follow this one path, we'll finally find rest, right? Uh, I don't know if any of you have this experience where you kind of just open your computer and you're on the internet and you don't even know why you opened it. Or you take out your phone, you're flipping through and you're like, I don't know why I'm here. But clearly I think something in that next tab or that next click is going to give me rest in some way. It never really has right? There's these, these habits and these patterns we do that clearly if you looked at our lives and you watched it, you would say, this person thinks that this will give them rest if they fully commit to it. And it doesn't seem like it has. And the farther we go up this path, the more kind of, the more we lose our priorities, right? The more we kind of lose track of reality. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you've had a friend or a family member that you haven't seen in a while and they come back, and there's just something different about them, and they, their priorities have shifted in a way that's alarming. And as you have a conversation with them, you feel like you're talking in two different places, like, why is logic not working with you anymore, you know? 
Uh, when you left, we, you were logical. This is not logical. This is irrational. Um, I think this is a similar thing that we can do as well when we prioritize things over Christ. We can go up and up the mountain until we lose priorities, we lose focus. And the key is, even if we ever got to the top, I don't think we would find rest there. So I want to look at two things, because this is a picture of a high-altitude climber. I want to look at uh, the way of death, and I want to look at the way of life. Uh, And eventually, I will use the whiteboard. You can take the teacher out of the classroom, but you can't take the classroom out of the teacher. Uh, All right. So this rich young ruler shows up, and let's preface it with this. It starts with a ruler. In this day, the wealth was seen as a sign of kind of moral success as well. It was not just, which actually our culture does in a lot of ways, right? Um, Attain a certain level of wealth and popularity, and people will interview you, you know, how did you do this? Tell me about your character traits so I can imitate them. And so this ruler was somebody who was respected a lot. And people thought, well, God really trust this ruler and loves this ruler and has bestowed lots of things on him. And you can imagine that when the ruler walked in the room, it was kind of like, you know, uh, step aside, this guy gets the floor. And he comes in, and some people have said that this wasn't a sincere question. I think it is. I think it's a sincere question. Uh, you can go either way. But I don't think he is like the Pharisees who's trying to trap Jesus and make Jesus say something stupid. I think he comes in and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, all right? And this is it. This is the religious question, right? I mean, if you've done any ministry ever, if you've, if you've ever been, like, raising your kid in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you are, like, waiting for this question, right? Like, how do I get eternal life? And you feel like Jesus, of all people, is, like, setting up, and he is about to crank this thing out of the ballpark, right? It's like, oh, glorious moment. Uh, and Jesus does this really odd thing. He doesn't quite, I mean, like... <laughs> I'm picturing myself in this situation just like falling over like, oh, let me tell you. And Jesus does this really odd thing where he starts with, he's like, why do you call me good? Look, don't flatter me. You know the commandments, right? And he does the, the second half of the commandments, the relational ones. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler says, and I think he means it, he's like, all these I've kept from my youth. I don't think he's showing off here. I think he's saying, like, no, I, I've, really, I've worked really hard, and I haven't, I haven't done any of those things. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good in that department. So Jesus hears this, and what happens at this moment is Jesus realizes that he is dealing with a high-altitude climber, right? He is dealing with somebody who's kind of lost track of reality. He has a wrong view, a wrong perception of what his life is about, of what's going on. And Jesus is like, we're going we're to pop this bubble. This is a desperate situation. You are way up there. So this is not the time for kind of kitty gloves on this. I have to shake you and shake you out of this priorities that are wrong. Shake you out of these priorities. Well, and he says, so let's test the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Let's just, all right, you've kept them. You say you've kept the commandments. You say that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So let me just say this. Uh, okay, good. I want you to sell all that you have. I want you to get rid of your money. I want you to give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, and I want you to follow me. So you say that uh, you keep the commandments. Let's start with the first one. 
And the ruler says, it says that the ruler says, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, let's, let's talk about what's happening here, because I want to say two things about this. So, firstly, I think there could be two tendencies that are wrong as we approach this passage. One is, I think you can soften it so much that it doesn't mean anything, right? So, we in this room are incredibly blessed financially, right? Um, I have never had a day where I've worried about food on my table. Uh, my parents were diligent and uh, saved money well as two teachers and took care of us. And I think that we fall in that category of wealth, right? And so the wrong thing to do would be to soften that to such an extent that it's like, well, he's not exactly talking about that. He's talking about this. Um, because the disciples, what they hear, right, is, is they hear that Jesus is saying, like, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they say, well, who can be saved, right? They hear the weight of this. This is very extreme, what Jesus is saying. But on the other hand, it is representative of something bigger, which is this. Uh, I think this is the point Jesus is trying to get at. Your success in this life may keep you from God. Your success in this life may keep you from God. The ruler was very successful. But one of the things that can happen as we have all we need, we may tend to forget the greatest thing we need, which is God. As we get all the things we need, we may tend to forget the things we really need, which is God. One of the greatest experiences I ever got to uh, partake of was uh, when Katrina, Hurricane Katrina hit Bay St. Louis. Got to drive down uh, and do support work there and help rebuild houses for a few summers in a row. And as I was there, the, it's amazing how when you suddenly begin asking questions like, where's my next meal come from? And all these things, you feel the weight of your dependence on God, right? And so as Jesus goes through his ministry, he frequently kind of illustrates, you think of like Nicodemus on one hand and uh, the woman at the well on the other, that it's not just our immoral acts that can keep us from God, it is actually our good things. We can do good things in such a way that it keeps us from God, that they're not about God, they're about us, right? They are about us. Uh, And I want to show, this is why this is up here, I want to show one way that I think as Christians we have a tendency to do this, is, uh, so we know know the gospel is awesome, it's in your liturgy, right? Uh, As you're reading the confession of faith, the gospel's right there, that's glorious. So you know like the, the gospel, here's God's standard and here's us, and there's this big gap, we know this, and Christ covers the gap, and it's glorious and it's very good. Well, one of the dangers we can do as Christians at this point is to say that this is what the rest of my life looks like. So my life is basically I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to try to read my scriptures more, but then I had a really bad week, and, but I'm going to do this really well and I'm going to volunteer more, but I had another bad thing and maybe something really bad, and then, but I'm bouncing back. and So it's kind of like this, right? And this becomes our walk with Christ. But what happens if this, if this is how you view your walk with Christ is the cross actually gets smaller, Okay. We all know people who've gone to church their entire lives, who've done all the spiritual disciplines, who don't seem to love Jesus very much or talk about him ever. That is interesting. How does that happen, right? There's somehow that this kind of approach to our faith, even with good things, like going to church, reading the scriptures, all that, have actually kept us apart from Christ in some way. 
It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Definitely, this is the way I feel like I lived most of my life. And what this does is, as you're going up here, there are only two possible outcomes. One is you're going to burn out. Because that's a lot of work, right? One is you're going to burn out, and you're going to constantly be wondering, like, on my good days, God loves me. On my bad days, God hates me. And so, blah, blah. The second thing is, you are probably going to become very uh, judgmental of people around you because, you, really, it's going to be hard to know, like, well, am I close to being perfect? <laughs> uh, and so you're going to wonder, you're going to have to say, well, at least I'm better than this person, right? At least I'm not as bad as this person. You're going to start also, you will find that as we think this way, the big positive commands, love your neighbor as yourself, are going to be really scary and daunting. Because when you get to the end of the day, if somebody says, did you love your neighbor as yourself? That's a hard one to answer with a hard yes, right? But if you get to the end of the day and you say, did you murder someone? You're like, no, right? (laughs) I feel good about that one. Um, If you can't answer that positively, you should probably speak to one, someone. Um, So the... And, and this is why I think, too, in Christian communities, there could be a tendency to really harp in on really small things and say this becomes a really big issue, right, as opposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, maybe this will get me in trouble. Uh, I don't know how... I remember as a kid... Yes, I'm young. I remember as a kid when the Harry Potter books came out. And even as a kid, I felt a little bit of an overemphasis on that negative, like we will reject this book. And I think part of what was going on is it's easy at the end of the day to choose one thing and say, I'm going to ban this or whatever. It is very difficult to say the positive, like love your neighbor as yourself and overwhelming. You tracking with me? If you don't like Harry Potter, that's cool. We're, we can still be friends. Um, so this ruler, this is, this is the way that I think the ruler is trying to do all these good things and it's actually squeezing out God. There is no God in his life at this point because he's done all these good things and it hasn't really helped him come closer to Jesus. And so Jesus says that line. He looks at him with sadness and says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Now, some people, there's been debate about this camel through the eye of a needle, right? When you hear it, what you picture is a literal camel and eye of a needle, very small, impossible. Some people have argued, no, there was a thing called the eye of a needle in the back of uh, kind of cities. It was small. A camel could maybe get through it. The point is that it's really hard. That's the main takeaway, right? Which is why the disciples hear it and they say, well, who can be saved? Okay, because their whole lives they have heard that if you are wealthy, it's because God loves you. It's because you've been moral. And so when Jesus sees this rich young ruler comes in, asks this sincere question, what do I do to inherit life? And Jesus says like, hey, you got to give it all up. And he turns away sad. The disciples are like, well, who? Wait, he was like the best guy we had. You just put him on JV. What happened? Right? What happened there? How then can we be saved? So we've seen here the way of death with the rich ruler Uh, There are some people who have argued that the rich ruler shows up later uh, and that there are a couple of other characters in the Gospels who seem to do positive things but aren't named. And maybe that was the rich young ruler. Maybe he comes back around towards the end. It seems very conceivable to me. So what is the way of life, right? Um, What is the way of life? Well, so the way of life, and this one's going to take a little more explaining, but you have to hang with me. Last time, I'll use the whiteboard. So the way of life, right, is here's the standard, start here, cross covers. And as you go through your life and you begin pouring into the scriptures 
and you begin going to church and doing those things, you actually recognize that the gulf, you're not getting worse, but the gulf between you and God was much wider than you ever could have possibly imagined. You realize that God is greater than he, you thought he was at the beginning. That the grace that Christ had to show you on the cross was greater than you ever realized. And what begins to happen is there wells up this kind of gratitude towards Christ, right? So this person's life, what's, what's amazing is this person here is actually what this person wants to be. This person has spent their whole life saying, I've got to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Make it happen, right? This person over here has looked at Jesus, and as they've looked at Jesus, it's caused them to love him, caused them to love their neighbor, and they're just kind of naturally doing those things. I think all of us probably know a person like that. We're like, they don't even look like they're working at it. It just kind of happens they're good people. You know, that's not fair. Uh, <laughs> but this is, I think, what Christ is getting at, is the way of life, okay? And the way of life can only happen if you recognize what the, what the disciples are beginning to recognize here. They say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Right? That's the key. What is impossible, if you recognize that your gift, your salvation, was impossible for you. You could not do it. You were enemies of God. And because of his grace towards you, he loves you. If you recognize that, if you feel that in your soul, this will allow this to begin to happen. I think of a story, uh, some of you have heard of maybe Keisha Thomas. Uh, this was in, also in 1996. Pretty happening year. Uh, 1996, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally that was going on. And uh, there were a lot of protesters shut up, about 100 protesters, 16 Klansmen. Well, one of the Klansmen wandered into the crowd on accident. And his body is riddled with signs of hate. His life is devoted to hatred. And he has, you know, the Nazi symbol on him and the Confederate flag and all these kinds of things. And as he wanders into the crowd, one of the leaders of the protest says, there's one of them. Get him. Okay? And suddenly the crowd falls on this person and begins to beat him. In that moment, Keisha Thomas, an 18-year-old senior, who came there to even to protest she sees this situation, and she falls on top of him to protect him. Okay? This guy is here because he hates her. She sees people beating on him, and you should look up the picture. It's incredible. She throws herself on this guy, saying, like, you're going to have to get through me to get to him. Uh, the photographer who took that picture said later, he said, she did for him what he would have never done for her. Who does that? Right? And I can't think of a better picture of what Christ has done for us. And if you kind of recognize that at your deepest level, that we have come in, we are enemies of God, and we say, like Satan does in Paradise Lost, I'd rather uh, reign in hell than submit in heaven. My way or nothing. And if you see kind of that depravity and that Christ, even though we deserve that justice, has thrown himself on top, that even though you were enemies, he has loved you deeply, then suddenly what that does is you don't have to sit there and kind of pull up all this, like, okay, got to be good. There is, becomes this genuine gratitude because of what Christ has done for you, right? You look at stories, you hear about great martyrs and people who've done things like that. That can't be motivated because you're just going to grind your teeth together and make it happen. That's only motivated out of love. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that if you grasp that it was impossible for anyone to get in, 
then suddenly that's going to start producing that fruit of the Spirit, right? But here's the thing. It's not even like Jesus, he's up on the top of the mountain and Jesus has got his loudspeaker. The beauty about what God does for us is he goes up on the mountain to get us, right? Isn't that what he does? He comes in the flesh. I teach a faith and culture class, which is a senior class, and somehow the way it's split up, uh, not on purpose, but my class is almost all non-Christians. And so it's been a really interesting kind of relationship we've developed with one another. And the one point at which I noticed that people really stopped and were like, wow, is when we begin to describe the fact that Jesus takes on flesh as a man, and in a way he said, I'm forever linked with you. I'm forever linked with you. The fate of man and the fate of God are the same. And Jesus doesn't take the body and then drop it, right? He is still 100% man, 100% God. God has been radically changed because of his love for us. He goes up the mountain to get us and to bring us back down. So what should this rich young ruler should have done? I don't know, but I think, as I kind of imagine playing it out, I think that moment when Jesus said, sell all your riches and distribute it to the poor. He should have just fallen on his knees and said, I can't do it. You're going to have to come up the mountain and get me. And I think Jesus would have. Now the beautiful thing is when your treasure is in the right place, uh, all that when, when Jesus is in the center, all those things that used to dominate you can suddenly be used in ways that they're supposed to be used. So for instance, uh, my students, I, I refer to them a lot, but kind of my life, Uh, my students abuse Netflix a lot, right? And they are terrified of their grades because they think it defines them. If you see Jesus as kind of the main treasure, then suddenly it allows you to enjoy all those things the way they're supposed to be enjoyed. You can do like schoolwork. You can do work. They don't dominate you. You can watch an hour of Netflix and it doesn't turn into a binge session, right? Uh, Those things don't become your masters. I want to end on this. Uh, this is the first time, I mean, your kids are always teaching you in various ways, but I feel like this is the first time, like, Murray, my oldest son, kind of reached out and was like, gospel. And he was only a year and a half old. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's a smart kid. Um, no, my, my wife leaves, and she's out of town, and it's the first time it's just Murray and I, and I'm very, like, I'm doing all the right dad things, and I'm ready for this moment. I've been preparing... And, of course, the minute mom walks out of the room, Murray meltdown, and just, it's an awful first day, and we barely make it to bed, and like, oh, terrible. And uh, so the next day, I wake up early, and I'm like, this is it. We're going to have the greatest Father Sunday ever, the kind of thing. They're going to montages, you know, beautiful music playing, balloons near. Um, So I wake up early, and I'm doing every, I'm like ready for him and everything he wants. I'm like, he gets up early, I'm like, I know you like baths, we normally take baths at night, who cares, we're taking a bath in the morning, woo, fun bath. And while he's doing the bath, I'm setting up something else for him, and I'm making him his favorite breakfast and all this, and I'm I'm doing all these things, and I'm feeling great about myself, because like, yes, I am number one dad, it's happening. And finally, after an hour and a half of my like just running around, (laughs) dropping things in front of Murray, I take him on a walk with our dog, and like halfway through, he just loses it again. And at this point, I'm just at wit's end. And I take him back, and I just kind of put him in his room. and like, can you just sit here for a minute? And I just leave, and I'm trying to get my head. I'm, I'm close by. But uh, trying to get my head. <laughs> I leave him in the house. No. <laughs> Try to get my head on straight. And I'm really angry because I've done all this work. And I come in, 
and I pick him up, and Murray is not a cuddler, and he just like holds me for like 30 seconds to a minute, and he does not do that, and so I'm sitting here holding this kid, and then he backs up, takes, he, I, I, he takes his, my head in his hands, says, I love you, dad, and gives me a kiss, and then I put him down, and he's happy. And I realize, and of course I'm just weeping. I realize what has happened, right, was that I was running around trying to do all these good things and Murray was like, all I want is to be with you, right? I just wanted you and me to be together. You didn't have to give me a bath. You could have just like, could we have read a book together? Could you have sat in my lap? I feel like this passage is, that's what Jesus is doing. Is we're typically running around doing all these things. And this passage is him trying to grab the rich young ruler and say, Hey, I love you. I just want to be with you. That's Jesus' message for us today. Don't we serve a good Savior? That's good news. Getting up in the morning to come out here to say that, that's awesome. Let's pray to him. Father, we love you. Uh, we love that the good news is good news. <sighs> And we don't have to pretend, and we don't have to, we don't have to lie. And when we think about even sharing the gospel with others, it could be because it's something really great and beautiful. That at the core of you of this story is the fact that you want to be with us. That's how the story begins, and that's how it ends. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.